this is the story that we're going to be looking at now over the next few weeks and months. Um, we're just going to take our time and we're going to work through the book of Galatians. And so if you want to be prepared for next week's message and the week after that and so far, we're just going to be going through Galatians. So I encourage you to begin reading this book. Um, the churches of Galatia were formed during Paul's first missionary journey, which you can read about in Acts chapters 13 and 14. And when you read those chapters, you'll see that he begins in Antioch, goes to Iconium, goes to Lystra, goes to Derbe. And, and as he's preaching there, there's a lot of gospel fruit. Jews and Gentiles are coming to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But there's also opposition. In Antioch and Iconium, uh, Jews um, are, are upset with Paul. They don't like him, and, and they, they eventually throw him out of the city. When he goes to Lystra, actually a mob of Jews will come from Antioch and Iconium. They come to Lystra where they rouse up the crowds. They take Paul outside the city where they stone him. They think that they have killed him, uh, but actually he, he wasn't dead. He gets up and amazingly he goes back into the city where he preaches the gospel again, and then the next day he goes on to Derby. What we see is that in the preaching of the gospel, there's a lot of gospel fruit. People come to believe in Jesus, and yet there's opposition uh, primarily from the Jews in the formation of these churches. But now when we come to the letter, what we see is that the church has been established, and yet there's still opposition. Although the opposition is no longer coming from outside the church like it was when the church was being planted, but now it's coming from within the church. And there are these people called Judaizers, which we'll get into more in the upcoming weeks, but basically the word means to live like Jews. And so these people, they've come within the church and they're beginning to undermine the gospel. And the problem is, is that they're sneaky and they're deceptive. Not because necessarily they're trying to be, but because their message is. They come in and they have no problem with Jesus. They actually, they like Jesus. And they say, yeah, you should believe in Jesus. You should believe that he died on the cross. Those are all good things. The problem is you just forgot something. You forgot that, that you still need to keep the Old Testament. And primarily they were looking at the Mosaic Law. And primarily they were looking at circumcision. What the Judaizers said is Jesus plus law, primarily circumcision, equals salvation. And that sounded pretty convincing to the Galatians as they were being told, well, you know, Jesus was a Jew and there's thousands of years of Jewish history, so may, maybe we should still keep these things. And so what we're going to see as we go throughout this book is that there is no other gospel and that if we begin to add things to the gospel of Jesus, we then create what's called a, a non-gospel, a false gospel. Rather than having a gospel that gives life, we're going to have a gospel that, that takes life, that kills and condemns. And so Paul is going to be reiterating throughout the book over and over that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And I think one thing, just to remember as we're going through here, we might expect a church that's been planted by Paul to be immune to deception. Like, I think we could think that. I, I think that. I mean, if anyone is going to plant a church other than Jesus, that's not going to have any problems. Surely it's going to be Paul. I mean, it's just going to go well, right? Paul's church has had problems, then we need to realize that, that we're probably going to struggle also. And if the churches that Paul planted 
struggle with understanding the gospel, struggled with adhering to a gospel that said Jesus plus nothing equals salvation, then we need to be aware also that our sinful nature has a natural bent towards not believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a natural bent in our sinful human, in our sinful human nature to want to add works. And so as we go through here, don't just think, I'm really glad Paul straightened those guys out. Paul is reminding us of the gospel also. So as we go through here, we're going to be reminded of the gospel. We're going to see the need to, to guard the gospel. And we're going to see that, that we're responsible for, for teaching the gospel and also teaching a gospel that is pure. A gospel that is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And so that's, that's what we're going to be doing as we go throughout today and as we go throughout the upcoming weeks is we're going to be looking at, at how Paul in the book of Galatians gives to us the gospel. And so today we're going to read verses 1 through 5. So I'd like to invite you to stand. One thing we do here um, at Timberline is we stand at the reading of the word and we do this because we believe God's word comes to us full of his authority and that there is no other word like it. So here we are, Galatians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 5, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, give us wisdom today as, as we now come and we look at your word. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you how you continually remind us of your grace throughout your word. And God, we, we thank you for this letter, this letter that causes us to, to pause and to remember that that our hearts are sinful. And we naturally bend away from your gospel. But God, thanks to your son, Jesus Christ, that by grace we have been saved, that by grace you have given us a new heart, that we would know you and love you and live for you. And God, as we come into the gospel today and we look at how you have written it to us, that we would know it and that we would understand who we are and the peace that comes to us in the gospel. Lord, I pray, comfort us encourage us, embolden us. Lord, may we be bold as, as Robert shared earlier today, the desire to share the gospel. But Lord, as we share the gospel, may, may it be that we share the true gospel of grace, Jesus plus nothing. God, I pray that as we go throughout this series that we would understand your grace, we'd understand that peace that comes to us because of your grace, and that we'd know how to live because of your grace. Father, we thank you for everything that you do for us in Jesus. Amen. You all may be seated. Um, Paul's going to do two things here in the intro. He's going to give a defense of his apostleship, and then he's going to give a defense of the gospel. And so we'll begin by looking at the apostleship. And, and he does this, let me um, remind that he does this not because he's concerned with how people think of him. 
He's not saying, I need to defend my apostleship so everyone likes me, so when I walk in, everyone respects me, so I get the best seat at the table. That's not in his mind. But rather, if his apostleship is compromised, then the message is compromised. So he's defending his apostleship so the church will believe the message, the gospel of grace that he's preached. And so he begins by defining, or begins by, by talking Paul, an apostle. And so we'll begin by defining apostle. Apostle means sent one or messenger. So when you read the apostle, or read that word, that's what it means, sent one or messenger. And there's really two types of apostles when we look at the Bible. In the New Testament, we have the apostles of the church. Now, these are people who have been sent out by a church, usually to go to another church, usually with a message of encouragement. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, you can see Epaphroditus was sent from Paul to go to Philippi, where he went to go encourage the church. Um, but then there's the apostles of Christ. Now, these are men who have been sent out by the risen Jesus Christ to go and proclaim the gospel with the authority of Jesus. So these are the men who speak with the same authority that Jesus spoke. This is Peter, James, John. This is Paul. These are all men who have been authorized by Christ to go and speak. And and in fact, many of these people are the very ones who have written the New Testament for us. Now this is where the problem comes in. Paul didn't walk with Jesus. He didn't walk with Jesus. And so... When the Judaizers, they're coming, they're discrediting Paul. Most likely, one of the things that they're saying is, you know, Paul wasn't really with Jesus. And and Paul doesn't actually preach the same gospel that that Matthew does, and Peter does, and James does, and John does. And, and, And because he's not a real apostle, the gospel that he gave to you is false. And so this is then where they come in with their message. And they say, well, actually... What you needed to hear was, yes, Jesus, but also the works that we still must do with the Mosaic law. We must be circumcised. We must honor the Sabbath. We must do these things. Otherwise, you will not really be saved. This is why Paul's opening his message this way. And he begins by talking about um, his apostleship first negatively and then positively. He says, negatively, not from men nor through man. He's wanting to remind the church. He said, look, I came to you guys. You know me. My apostleship is not because any man laid his hand on me. I was not commissioned by a church. I was not commissioned by anyone other than Jesus Christ. And then positively, he says, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul appeals straight to the Son and to the Father. And if you look down in verse 12, just kind of skim down. There he'll write, for I did not receive it, meaning the gospel, from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. All throughout chapters 1 and 2, we're going to see that Paul is reminding them that his gospel comes from Jesus Christ. His apostleship comes from Jesus Christ. And in fact, through chapters 1 and 2, it's going to look like he's kind of putting distance between him and the other apostles. He wants it to be known. When he, when he became a believer in Jesus Christ, and when he became apostle, he did not go right to Jerusalem. He didn't go to the apostles. He didn't go to understand the gospel from them, but he understood it through Jesus Christ. And so when we read 1 and 2, those chapters, you're going to see this kind of distancing, 
He's not saying anything bad about the apostles, but the reason he's distancing himself from them is to let the church know his gospel is the same as their gospel. And so what would you do? Maybe a, a child in your family, maybe someone at work, maybe someone within the church, they come up to you and they say, I don't think that Paul is really an apostle. In fact, I don't think that his message is, is really true. In fact, I kind of think his gospel is wrong. What would you do? We should do exactly what Paul does here. We remind them, well, Paul didn't receive the gospel from man, and he actually only received it from Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, but Paul wasn't, he never met Jesus. He didn't walk with Jesus. And then we'd actually say, well, well yes, he did. And most likely what Paul is doing here in these opening verses is he, he's alluding to Acts chapter 9. In the book of Acts, we have the account of Paul's salvation. And let me just read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Paul, or, or Saul, Saul was Paul's name before he came to know Jesus, just in case you didn't know. But it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so it, it's important for us to see this. So Paul, then Saul, he's on the road to Damascus with the purpose of arresting and killing Christians. He has no desire to, to love the church, no desire to plant churches, no desire to do anything good for them. And it's at this moment that Jesus literally knocks him off his horse, blinds him with the light. He says, why are you persecuting me? Now, was Paul persecuting Jesus or was he persecuting the church? Well, to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus because the church is the body of Christ. That's why, that's why Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And so here we see it's in this time that Jesus now confronts Paul. He actually has, he, he comes into an experience with the risen Jesus Christ, and Jesus commissions him, and in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 9, Paul, or Jesus will say that I have taken him, I have saved him for the purpose of him taking my message to the Gentiles and to the Jews. And so the whole point of chapter 9 in Acts is to show us how God saves Paul and that Jesus commissions him as an apostle equal to that of Paul, of Peter and James and John and the other apostles. And so if someone came to you and said, well, why do you believe Paul? We'd take them to Acts and we'd say, well, Scripture testifies that he is an apostle. From Scripture, we see that he had an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. Paul's not preaching a made-up gospel. He didn't just go into his backyard, have a bonfire, a mystical experience, and say, hey, I think I got something here. And then he goes and tries to start sharing that with the churches. Paul's saying, my gospel is not wrong because my apostleship comes from Jesus. Now remember, he's defending his apostleship not because he wants people to respect him not because he's just wanting to have a better name for himself but rather because he's concerned most 
with the gospel. The Judaizers are coming and saying, it's Jesus plus works. And Paul is saying, look, that's not true. If you add anything to Jesus, it will kill. I- imagine that if, uh, you ever go to 7-Eleven? I don't think 7-Eleven is as big anymore, but I, I used to love 7-Eleven growing up. You'd go get, it used to be the 32 ounces, and then it's like the 44 ounces, and now it's like the 60 ounces. And I don't know if they have a bigger cup than that. They might, they probably have like the 72 ounce cup. They do? Okay, I'm 70, like it's just massive. Like you can't hold those, and there's no cup holder in any car that can support that kind of liquid. And if it does spill in your car, it's like a flood at that moment. But imagine you get like one of those giant cups, imagine it's clear, and you just fill it with just clean, purified water, and it's good. And maybe you just get done running a race like Robert does. I don't know why he does that, Uh, but it sounds like fun for him. Um, Or maybe you do like one of those Tough Mudders, or you go hiking, whatever it is, you're just dripping with sweat. And, and, and you see this big cup of water and say, man, that is, this is exactly what I want. That's going to give me the life that I need, the refreshment that I need. And then all of a sudden, right before you take it, I take a dropper out of my pocket, and I just put a couple, po- a couple drops of poison in it, and I say, here you go. Would you still drink it? No, you'd be like, there's poison. I'd say, well, just a little bit. Not really that much. Yeah, but if you add anything to it, any amount of poison, no longer is it a liquid that gives life, it's a liquid that, that takes life, it kills. In fact, I heard a long time ago, it's from Jerry Bridges in one of his books, he said that if, like on one of those large aircraft carriers, um, one of those boats that go out into the sea, if you took just one cup of machine oil and put that into the entire ship's drinking water, it would contaminate all of it and kill every person on board. Just a little bit. And so what Paul is doing here is saying, look, if you add anything to the gospel, it distorts it into a non-gospel. It will not give life, but it becomes a giant weight upon you that will crush you and kill you. And so Paul, first, he defends his apostleship. He's going to do that throughout chapters 1 and 2. And now he's going to defend the gospel. He's going to remind us what the gospel is. And so we read in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just a reminder, um, when you read the letters in the New Testament, don't skim through the intros. Like, we don't just read Paul and Apostle, not from man. Okay, grace to you, okay. All right, where do we get, is it verse 6, verse 11? When do we start getting to the meat? We don't just skim through. They don't write letters in the first century like we write them today. Um, My most despised part of an email is the subject. I have no clue ever what to write there. Like, you just try to write something, because if you don't, then you'll get the error message, and it'll say, you know, you didn't put anything in the subject line. Um, So you have to put something there. I struggle with that at times. Just, what do I put? Or, or even my next worst spot is like the first three sentences of the email. Because I have something I want to communicate, but I feel like I just can't say it. So it's kind of like, how are you? Haven't seen you for a while. Hope you're doing good. Like, I'm just throwing up stuff. Like, please just read this. Just get to the, like, the second paragraph. And it's the second paragraph. But I feel like I have to give you this. Do you ever feel like that? I hate emails. I hate those things. I wish we could just be like, look, this is what I mean. Read this. Um, That's what they did back in the first century. Um, When we're reading these intros to the letters, don't skim through them. There's meat here. 
There is doctrine. Now, my subject line, there is no meat and doctrine in my subject lines of an email. I doubt yours are, but if you could do that, please teach. Um, but when we come here, first thing we see is grace to you and peace. Now, every one of Paul's letters begins with grace to you, and guess how they end? Grace be with you. Um, if you just flip to the back of the book, Galatians 6.18. Read, very last verse. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Brothers, amen. Grace be with you, but in the beginning it's grace be or grace to you. Just remember, every time you're opening God's word, what Paul is communicating is you're receiving grace at that moment. Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians. He's mad, and you're going to see that more next week. Uh, but he's mad, he's upset, he can't believe they're believing this false gospel. But he's saying, as you read this grace, Grace is coming to you. And, and I hope you know that when you open up your Bibles in the morning and you read your Bibles, grace is coming to you. Right now, as we read God's Word, grace is coming to us. And guess what the good news is? As we close our Bibles and we walk away from them, Paul is saying, grace be with you. The grace that you receive in the Word will continue to be with you and transform you as you walk away and go about the life that you're living to please God. I mean, I just want to encourage you let that be a motivation right there to begin your day with the gospel of Jesus Christ every morning. Read the Bibles in the morning. Spend time with God. Every morning you open up God's word, you're beginning with God's grace. And that grace will be with you all throughout the day as you're, as you're living, as you're taking care of your children, as you're working, as you're doing all the things that you're doing. Um, but that's not the only reason he starts out with grace. Grace is also the content of the gospel. Everything about the gospel comes to us with grace. And notice he says, grace to you and peace. What is peace? Well, peace is really the result of the gospel, right? Grace comes to us, and peace is the result of the gospel. And so what Paul's now going to do in verses 4 and 5, he's going to unpack this grace that gives us this peace. He wants us to see the content that gives us the peace of God. And so he does that. Um, in verses 4 and 5, and he's going to remind us of this grace. So first we begin with grace delivers. And what we read in verse 4, Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Jesus delivers us from the present evil age. Well, what is that? What is this present evil age? What's well, the age we live in right now? It's the age they lived in in the first century. It's the age that began when Adam and Eve sinned. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they said, rather than glorify you, rather than honor you, we want to glorify ourselves. Rather than bow before you on your throne, we want the throne. And because you and I, and we all come from Adam and Eve, we also want the glory, we also want the throne. That's what it is to be sinful. Rather than glorify God, we want to glorify ourselves. And so this present evil age is characterized by rebellion against God and the exaltation of man. We want to be exalted. And, and it's because of sin that we don't actually see this as a problem. We don't see ourselves as bad. We don't see ourselves necessarily needing to be rescued by grace. Because I think part of what it is to be um, sinful is we love to compare ourselves with others and when we do that we very easily 
see those who are much, much worse than us. I mean, there's no one here like Hitler today. Mass genocide. There's no one here like Ted Bundy or Jack the Ripper. When we look around, we don't have those here, I don't think. In fact, if, if we look at ourselves, there's, there's a lot of good things we do. We look at humanity and we say, look, we send people to the moon. We explore. We, we look at things. We look at science. We understand the world that is here. These are good things. We, we put wells in third world countries for those who are poor. That's a good thing. We, we build libraries and learning facilities. Many of you, you go to work each week. Bring home a paycheck so that your family would be supported. You'd have food and clothing. And we say, those are good things. How can you say we need to be rescued by grace? How do you say this is a present evil age? And while all those things are good, and I do believe God gives what we call common grace, that that all of us would experience grace, and none of us are as evil as we could be, none of that negates the truth that our hearts are full of sin and still rebellious towards God. You see, the deception in all of those things, which, which are good, is that we don't think we really need to be saved. We don't think that we're really as bad as, as what God's Word says. And when we begin to believe that lie, we then think that we can earn our way to heaven. We then think that we can get ourselves to God. Now, maybe we need some Jesus... Maybe we need, like what we said a few weeks ago, the Red Bull can of grace. We need Jesus to kind of give us a boost. But once Jesus gives us our boost, I can complete it by the Mosaic Law. So then all of a sudden it's Jesus plus circumcision. Or Jesus plus Sabbath keeping. Or Jesus plus really good church attendance. Or Jesus plus giving money to the church. Or working hard. Or raising kids. Or putting food on the table. And all those things are good enough to say, I'm good. I should be saved. When we believe in a gospel of works, though, we're doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did. And we said, God, you don't deserve all the glory. In fact, I want all the glory, or at least I want a lot of it. But what we do is we fail to remember the truth of the gospel, that we stand condemned before God because of our sin. Now, I think um, we understand that theologically, but functionally, I think we forget that a lot as believers. Meaning, if someone was to come to you and say, hey, what's a good Christian? Like, how would you describe that? Well, you'd probably say, well, a good Christian is one who reads his Bible and gathers with the church and prays and puts his money in the offering and and serves, goes to the soup kitchen and comes up with a list of things. And, And we would say, that's a good Christian. And we'd stand almost proud as we said that, and we'd feel very confident, right? But we'd be very wrong. None of those things make a good Christian. Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, is what makes a Christian. Only by grace are we justified by God that we'd be righteous. Reading the Bible, praying, gathering with the church, those are good things. And we do that as a result of grace in our lives. But none of those make us righteous. And none of those will improve on the righteousness of God. So just when you read your Bible, God's not going, wow, uh, he looks even better now. He's shining even more brightly than my son Jesus. 
No, we don't improve on the righteousness of Jesus. Rather, by reading the Bible, by praying, gathering with the church, we're growing in the grace of Jesus. We're better understanding who we are because of grace. We're living out who we are. We're experiencing the peace of God that comes from the grace of God. But we don't do those things to become a better Christian. But oftentimes, I think Christians, we, we become very anxious and many Christians I know, and maybe you're here today, you struggle greatly with assurance of your salvation. I think one of the main reasons many believers struggle with assurance is because we fail to remember it's the grace of God that justifies us, and it's not our works. Because we default back oftentimes into thinking, oh man, today was terrible. Was it because I didn't read the Bible? Was today bad because I didn't do this, because I didn't do this, because I didn't do this? Is God now punishing me? Do I need to earn my way back into His presence? Do I need to earn His grace again? And so we're continually anxious. We're saying, well, I just need to work harder. I just need to do more. But rather, God didn't save us, so we need to do more to get grace. Rather, He offers us all the grace that we need through His Son, Jesus Christ, and we regularly experience that through His Word through the church, through prayer. The good news of the gospel is what we read in verse 4. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. That we become new creations. Rescued from this present evil age. No longer slaves to sin, but that we would be able to live and please and glorify God. Jesus came to stand in our place to suffer where we should have suffered, to pay the debt that we should have paid. That's the gospel. And that's the gospel that Paul is going to write about, that that is what justifies us before God. So why does Jesus do this? Because of grace ordained. Look on in verse, um, the second part of verse 4. According to the will of our God and Father. Why did Jesus come? Why has He come to deliver us from the present evil age? Because it was the will of God. Before creation, God had a plan that one day He would send His Son to die on a cross so that by grace we would be saved. Do you know the cross is not an accident? You know, God did not actually create saying, I hope this goes well. Oh man, they screwed that up. What am I going to do now? Well, Maybe I could do this. Maybe I'll give them the Mosaic Law. We'll see if that fixes them. No, that didn't fix them. Maybe I'll, I'll send Jesus then. No, the cross is not God's emergency plan. It's not an afterthought. The cross is not plan B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. You, you get the point? It's not any of those. The cross has always been the plan. It's always been the plan. In the mind of God, before eternity, there was grace Because our God is a God of grace. And so he said, I desire that my people will always gather to me and worship me through the grace of Jesus Christ. That's always been the plan. It was never that he would have a people that would worship him in any other means than the grace of Jesus Christ. Never has God intended for you or I to earn his favor. Never has God intended for us to come and worship Him in any means other than the grace of Jesus. Never has God held grace above our heads or salvation above our heads saying, Jump! How high can you jump? I mean, that's what I do with my dog. And I try to see what I can get Him to do. And if He does it good enough, He gets a treat. That's not how God approaches us. 
But rather, he says, grace has been my plan. It's always been my plan. It's been my plan since past creation, and it will be the way in which we always experience God. Why? Why? Why does it have to be grace? Go to verse 5. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's because everything God does is for His glory. Salvation is meant to glorify God. That's why it's by grace. Because it's grace, it glorifies God. And because it's grace, it gives us peace. If it's works, we have no peace. But because it's grace, we have peace and God is glorified. Grace satisfies us and it exalts God. That's why it's grace. Every religion, every religion other than Christianity is works-based. You just kind of draw a line. You put Christianity, the gospel of grace over here, and then you put everything else over here. The Judaizers wanted to add circumcision. The Mormons, they wanted to add their own efforts, their family size, their evangelism skills. The Muslims, they prove their devotion by praying five times a day. The Hindus worship all of creation in order of hoping to pacify whoever they need to pacify for the sake of their salvation. Even the atheist will justify himself by speaking of his good works. But what do they all have in common? It is works. It is the exaltation of man. That's what it is. And that's exactly where you and I were before we received the grace of God. By works, no one will ever be justified before God. And we need to hear that, and we need to know that. That means that your neighbor who does not know Jesus will never be justified apart from the grace of God. The message they need to hear is the gospel of grace. That means your coworker who you sit with each and every day stands condemned before God because they're trusting in their works. They're looking at who they are. They're comparing themselves against a host of other people saying, I'm better than that. And they might be better than they are, but no one is good enough to stand before God. So apart from the message of the gospel of grace, they're condemned. Your children... Unless if they believe in the message of Jesus Christ, they stand condemned before God. Your spouse is condemned before God. Those in other parts of the world who have not heard of the message need to hear the message of grace. Otherwise, they stand condemned before God. So as we hear this, and as we're going to go over this week and week out, and we're going to be refined by the gospel, and we're going to go deep into the gospel, and we're going to see the beauty of the gospel, it cannot just be, yes, that's what we believe, and we stop there. But it's what we believe, it's what we love, it's what we treasure, it's what we guard, and it's what we share in every part of our life. This is why Paul goes and plants churches he plants churches because he says there are people who don't believe in the gospel of grace. And unless if they do, they stand condemned before God. So I'm going to go risk being stoned by, by, by stones, being killed, so that they would hear the message of grace. And we too have been given that commission as well. We are not going out as apostles like, like Paul did. 
But we go out commissioned through the same scripture, though, with the purpose of sharing the gospel with those who do not know the gospel. Because the world believes in a Jesus plus works. But the only gospel that saves is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. If you remember Martin Luther, one of the quotes I read about him a couple of weeks ago, he was one of the reformers 500 years ago. He said, I was a good monk, and I kept my order so strictly that I could claim that if ever a monk were able to reach heaven by monkish discipline, I should have found my way there. All my fellows in the house who knew me would bear me out in this. For if I had continued much longer, I would, what with vigils, prayers, readings, and other such works, I uh, would have done myself to death. Here we have Martin Luther saying, I was doing everything I could to obtain the grace of God to reach the peace of God, and I could not do it. And he had the resume of works. And he says, everything I was doing was not moving me closer to God. It was not giving me life, but it was condemning me and taking my life away. It's only the grace of God that comes to us that gives us peace, and that glorifies God. When we rely upon works, there is no peace. And I encourage you, if you're here today, and you just know that you have not been experiencing peace, maybe you know that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but functionally, you've been acting like you aren't. Functionally, you've been trusting more in your actions and in your works to give you that peace. I I encourage you to repent today. I encourage you, just repent of your unbelief there. And come back to Jesus and say, God, just forgive me. Help me to remember the true grace of God. And maybe you're here today and you've been trying to earn your way to God. And you're saying, look, I I look at myself and I've been thinking that I was good, but yet I always know that I keep falling short and you just keep trying, keep trying, but you never actually feel closer to God. I want to encourage you that that's the grace of God. He comes to us because we can't come to him. He comes to us to pay the penalty of our sin because we can't pay it. He absorbs the wrath of God because it would take you and I an eternity to absorb that wrath. And he pays the debt that we could not pay so that we would be saved, so that we could be justified, and that we would receive the peace of God. And that we could live for him each day, no longer as slaves to sin, but as children of God. That's what the gospel does. It takes slaves of sin and makes us children of God. Grace secures our peace, and it maximizes God's glory. And that's what we're going to look at as we go throughout these next few weeks and months as we come through the book of Galatians. So I encourage you to be reading. I encourage you to be studying the book. Um, It's going to be a neat time where we're coming. Just really understand the grace of God and how He has saved us. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that the gospel comes to us by grace. Thank you that it does not rely on any part of our effort, but that you have saved us. You have made us alive. You have given us life that we could live for you. You have paid the debt that we could not pay so that we could experience your peace. Knowing that, God, we are justified before you because of your son Jesus. Knowing that we have eternal life. Knowing that we can now live for you without the anxiety 
of thinking we still need to earn our way into your presence. Thank you, God, for the security you give us, that you give us your Holy Spirit to dwell upon us as the guarantee of our inheritance and our salvation, that we would know that in this world, this present evil age, that you are making all things new. And that there is a day coming where you will make a new heaven and a new earth where we will gather around you, all who have believed in you, and we will worship you for all of eternity. God, we praise you for that. Thank you for the grace that you give us through your son, Jesus. The grace that gives us peace and the grace that glorifies you. In your name, Jesus, amen.